Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm on the move this week. I've spent all weekend at the Cambridge Literary Festival uh, and so I've been interviewing writers uh, and that has been great fun. But now I've come to rest for this afternoon of cerebral chatter of more more books can you tell us who 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 did you talk to what did you talk about what what's what's the deal well I talked to all sorts of great people I talked to Julian Barnes uh who revealed this wonderful thing when when the interviewer uh described his book as being relatively sort of short his new novel uh you know we've been talking about it on the podcast recently mm. and he said but not slim or slender Never say that. Writers don't like that. No, you don't want a slender tone. No, no, compact, he says. Compact is the word that we must use always. That is writers' preferred terms. So I was uh, talking, uh, I watched him, in fact, being interviewed by by someone else. That was great. Mm -hmm. Um, I interviewed Douglas Stewart, marvellous. But I know who you really were interested in. Interested in all the writers, Alex. All of them, but... You were, I know, you were interested in every single one, but you were very excited when I revealed I was going to be interviewing Gardner, Joe Swift. I was, I was very excited. I can't help it. Has he got a book out, first of all? Can I read oh, it? Got, he has. He has. Are you sensing future podcast opportunities? <laughs> uh, he has actually got a series of books, and they are very sort of no-nonsense how to you know, create an edible garden or a wild garden, a nature garden or whatever. And they are sort of actually compact uh, little guides, sort of no-nonsense guides. And I did really enjoy talking about him because, you know, obviously we're both keen gardeners, you and I. Mm. Uh, but I wouldn't describe myself as a tremendously knowledgeable one. And he is fantastic at saying to people, don't ask me about dead plants. If it's dead, dig it up and move on. Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry if you don't know the technical terms. Chitting potatoes just means putting them in a light place. Yeah. And you don't have to worry 
if you kill something because something else will come in its place. And I found that tremendously reassuring. And finally, uh, an unusual person for me to interview, but a link to Joe Swift, who said, oh, you must say hello to him, he's a great gardener. I interviewed the pop idol winner, Will Young. Oh, yes, he's a massive gardener, isn't he? He's a huge gardener. And we talked about dogs. We talked about the fact that the last time he'd been in Cambridge, he'd been in Cambridgeshire. He'd been there to chain him, to handcuff himself to some railings to protest animal cruelty. Uh, and uh, and yes, we talked about his book about health and mental health and well-being. And it was uh, so I've had I've had a busy and very pleasant uh, few days. But uh, one of the things that was not so pleasant that happened to me, which throws to our other item talking about on this week's podcast uh, which is physical books the kind of physicality and materiality of books was that I got on an aeroplane to come to the UK and my kindle froze at the beginning of the flight can you imagine a worse thing to happen did you have anything at all you didn't even have the back of a, a kind of cereal packet or nothing to read I was on an airline so budget there wasn't even an in-flight magazine it was absolutely it was sort of I was panic struck I thought, what am I going to do? You make the person next to you talk to you for the whole flight. Come on, <laughs> tell me a story. No, I tried actually. I tried to sort of, I mean, this, what does this tell you about me? I tried to kind of meditate my way out of panic, but it just got worse, really. <laughs> it was terrible. Yes, it did actually turn to a glass of white wine from the, well, from the trolley. And the, <laughs> I did consider going up and down this very packed flight, wondering if anybody had a spare book. But then I decided just, I just had to manage. I mean, I'm going to be truthful here. The flight was an hour long, so I really, you know. Oh, an hour? It's not too bad. It's, it wasn't long haul, was it? But I'd really calibrated the amount of my thriller I had left. Just, it was very disappointing. Anyway, you, Lucy, have you have you anything to beat that kind of horror? Nothing at all. Nothing. <laughs> I haven't interviewed any of pop stars, gardeners, novelists, or uh, no. I probably killed a few plants. That's probably the nearest I came to. Uh, well, to- I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter. Hooray. Move on. Doesn't matter at all. Uh, so coming up on this week's show. Two works of biology draw on a breathtaking range of research to shed light on sex, gender and reproduction across the animal and human world. And we'll be diving deep, as mentioned, into the fascinating history of books and their readers. But first, current debates about the extent to which sex and gender are immutable have proved exceptionally divisive. And it's hard not to feel that at their most contentious, these arguments are providing more heat than light. But there is a wealth of observation, research and serious thinking in the world of biology that might help us. Carol Tavares has reviewed two such books, Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist by Franz de Waal, and Lucy Cook's Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. Carol joins us now. Welcome, Carol. Thank you for inviting me to chat with you on this otherwise boring subject, yes. It's just so, so interesting. And I mean, you're review is extremely detailed and fascinating and at the beginning of it you map out the evolutionary territory so to speak as it has been for some time including your own coinage the king and i version of evolution and i wonder if you could just explain about that territory and about what the king and i means within it right well you need to understand that i as a social psychologist 
started my career uh, interested in the study of sex differences and gender differences and what that even meant. I have long called this the king and I view of gender because the king in that old musical, I when I was a child, it was Yul Brenner and Brenner in the film sings, a girl must be like a blossom with honey for just one man. A man must be like the honeybee and gather all he can. To fly from blossom to blossom, a honeybee must be free, but blossom must not ever fly from bee to bee to bee. <laughs> so I love this. And one of my favorite commentaries on this is that in all my years of studying sex differences, that's the one most reliable one, namely men like that theory far more than women do. And you can see why the man must be free. We can't have any of these pesky women, you know, telling us to behave in ways that are not natural to us. So that's the transformation we are now seeing as women enter these professions and have begun looking at what the queen is doing. And what the queen is doing is flying from B to B to B. This was really quite a shocking revelation to many. So there was essentially a sort of bias that just meant men, male biologists and scientists, were looking at it simply from their own point of view and finding a kind of theory that's that was kind of congenial to them and not challenging so am I being too simplistic no 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 not at all this notion about the naturalness of male promiscuity and female monogamy dates back to Darwin and as Lucy Cook writes so well in her book to question Darwin, especially in, in England, is heretical. You know, it's this is our hero. This is our champion of evolutionary biology. How could he have been wrong? How could he have been so wrong? But it is the nature of all science, all science, um, not in a malevolent or even conspiratorial way necessarily, to come up with a theory, to seek evidence that confirms that theory, this is a natural bias of the human mind. We look for evidence to support our beliefs and we ignore or forget or overlook or suppress any evidence that is discrepant with our beliefs. Now, science is ideally designed to force us to face disconfirming evidence, but scientists are human. And so they have made that same error of confirmation bias that everybody else does. And you see this dramatically in the study of sexual behavior. One of the funniest things in both of these books that they talk about are the contortions that male scientists went into when they were confronted by direct observational evidence of same-sex behavior uh, between males or between females across species or when, you know, or when they saw evidence of female, well, it used to be called promiscuity. Now we say sexual adventuresomeness, right? Um, they, they couldn't, they literally couldn't believe it. And the, um, some of them would simply say, well, well, um, well, the, uh, fem the, the females were just uh, sexually experimenting with each other by mistake. You know, she, yes. she thought she was with a man. No, you know, or 
the same sex behavior um, between males was particularly distressing for many male scientists. And they would say, no, it's sham sexuality. It's pseudo sexuality. They're rehearsing their sexuality for when the next female comes along. No concept that this behavior was perfectly expected and normal embedded in the behavior of that species. It was really very, very difficult. What both of these books show so brilliantly is how difficult it was to accept this evidence of female, females having multiple sexual partners, even when pregnant. See, that was the real shocker. Because in evolutionary terms, what Darwin had said is, well, the female has to be choosy who she's going to have sex with, because that's going to be the father of her offspring, and she'd better be really careful. Well, then what accounts for why a female would continue to have sexual activity, even when pregnant, or with many multiple males? But that turns out to be the normal way of things in 93% of all animal species. That's a knockout statistic. It's extraordinary. Uh, you hardly ever hear 93% of anything throughout science, do you? No, exactly. And, you know, with the advent of DNA and other kinds of testing, where you can determine the paternity of offspring, one of the big shockers, again, for so many scientists, was discovering how many offspring are not fathered by the guy in the nest, you know, <laughs> and that, that was, a you know, hmm, we don't like that finding. We really don't like that finding. So that was um, a very important one. So what that meant was evolutionary biologists and psychologists had to go back to the drawing board to figure out, well, then what is the evolutionary benefit of females having multiple sexual partners? See, now we have a new question because the old question and the old answer is no longer supported. You know, I, I asked uh, the TLS to include mention of the book I wrote many years ago now called The Mismeasure of Woman, which is a study of bias in the study of gender, of women and of men. And I had a chapter on the myth of the coy female. Even then in 1992, the evidence was wildly accumulating that the coy female of Darwin's imagination was just that. It was his imagination and not reality. Um, and <laughs> that chapter was very shocking to many people, but it's taken all this time since for an accumulation of more and more evidence across more and more species to show how wrong Darwin really was. If then, you know, you were trying to, scientists were trying to think, well, what is the evolutionary reason for this multiple sexual behavior um whether something like sexual pleasure would count but if there could do you then have to fit the idea of sexual pleasure as having an evolutionary benefit or are you then faced with having to say well some kinds of behavior are just not dictated by evolutionary benefit at all that's a terrific question and a very important one because as as both books do say quite clearly, the idea that any animal would be having sex for pleasure. What? That can't, that can't be true. We have sex only for reproduction. Well, no, 
Humans don't, and neither do many species. Um, sexuality has, it turns out, as we should not be surprised, has many functions, all with evolutionary benefits. Pleasure, yes, because that will increase the chances of the activity continuing, but also bonding and attachment and fun and experimentation and, yes, reproduction. So when you separate sexuality from reproduction, then you can begin to see the other functions of sex that would be beneficial for any species. So, for example, among many animal species, a female who has sex with many males guarantees their support of her offspring. It's as if the guy is saying, well, we had sex, so maybe this kid is mine, this kid, this chick, (laughs) this calf, maybe this baby is mine and I better do a little something to take care of it. So the female gets more support from more males, which of course has survival benefits for her offspring. And by the way, there are some human societies, not many because of, well, there's another reason why human beings are different in this respect, but in some human communities, such as the Bari in South America, females are expected to take lovers during their pregnancy. And in a way for the same reason, because the males are more likely to support and aid the offspring as a result. How interesting that is, yeah? You increase the, the, the sort of stake that men have in a potential, in offspring, because they may think that it's their child. Exactly. And by the way, it also increases their bond to the female. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, once again, um, these books say so brilliantly, if we are thinking about sex only in terms of reproduction, we miss the powerful evolutionary forces uh, for other reasons for sexual behavior. Really fascinating, I think. I wonder what this might tell us, because this book ranges from bonobos and chimpanzees, that's Franz de Waal's speciality to anemone fish and penguins. <laughs> of course, as you, as human readers, we are always interested in saying, well, okay, what does this tell us about us and how we behave? And, you know, in my introduction, I was talking about the sort of great changes in how we're thinking about sex and gender. Um, and I wonder what it might tell us, what these books might tell us about how we understand human sexual dimorphism. And perhaps most importantly, the anomalies and the exceptions that might suggest that sex and gender might both be more fluid than has been previously thought. Well, why not wander into one of the most contentious issues of our times? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why not ask a really simple, easy question with an answer in a sentence? (laughs) Really? Uh, How many days do we have for this conversation? Sure. We'll we'll just talk about anemone fish. But, you know, it's... It's interesting, and this is one of the, it, it's such a complicated area. Yes, that it is. People obviously, you know, feel for, for various different reasons, terribly sort of tangled and confused when they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And yet we kind of do have to talk about it, don't we? Because it's one of the great issues of our age. Yes, it is. There's two themes here. One is, as Franz Duval says, you know, you, you can't just, pick and choose what species in the animal kingdom you most like or want to be. I remember when we were first learning about the bonobo and how they live their lives 
as such a sexual species. They have sex to say hello and goodbye and to solve problems and to, you know, have just to be playful. Um, they are, they use sexuality in an extremely fluid and cooperative way. <laughs> I remember a co-author on one of my, our textbooks said, when my next life, I want to be a bonobo. Humans are too much like chimpanzees. And, you know, it, <laughs> right, you know, but it would, how, wouldn't it be nice if we could all live like bonobos? Well, we're not bonobos and we can't, unfortunately, we can be charmed by them, but we can't learn from them in a way that applies to the complexities of human relationships. So let's, let's make that point clear. We're not, you know, trans activists love to point to species that are that are sex fluid. And by sex, I mean biologically fluid. Uh, the anemone fish can be a female in the morning and a male at night and then go back to being a female and two hours later, we're not like that. We are not that fluid. What we're arguing about here, what the issue is, is this. The distinction between sex and gender I've always felt is a powerful and important one. Namely, sex, how we define ourselves as male and female is is powerfully biologically determined. Now, Lucy Cook shows all of the elements that go into that determination are far more complicated than the old XY, XX chromosome issue. A lot more is going on in determining biological maleness and femaleness. Gender has long been reserved for the attributes, qualities, skills, and abilities thought to be associated with one sex or another. And gender is hugely fluid in our personalities, in our abilities, in our talents, in our skills. What we're seeing is a complete blurring in that way because our old, quote, sex roles that determined what women could do and what men can do, that's just been blown to hell. Nobody cares about that anymore. Anybody can be anything they want if, if our laws, if we lose the discriminatory laws that said that would not be possible. And this would be a question, really, of, of, of the fact that gender is also socially determined to such a great extent and therefore historically Absolutely. determined. You know, it changes all the time throughout societies, across ages. We decide what it is. We can decide what it is. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, Marvin Harris was a wonderful anthropologist whom I interviewed many years ago who said, you know, he said male supremacy was just a phase in the evolution of culture. A phase? I said it's a very long phase. He said, yes, well, the two props of male supremacy were men's ability to control female fertility and men's greater strength in warfare. He's, and here's what he said in around 1975. Once women can control their own fertility and once warfare becomes a mechanized matter, we will see differences between the sexes in those two most defining arenas vanish. And with them, the need for males to be the dominant controlling patriarchal sex. Pretty interesting. Mm. Now, what we've seen in D and what have we seen? Women going into the military, women having the nerve to control their own fertility. Shocking. So yes, gender has long been socially, culturally, psychologically determined, and it changes with the times, it changes with the economy, it changes with the needs of societies, it, cha it changes is the bottom line. What is contentious nowadays 
is how fluid sexual identity is, being a male or a female. That's the real thing that's under the microscope these days that's causing so much conflict and, and, and confusion. Because it has long been known that roughly 2% of all human births have anomalies involved. The baby is a hermaphrodite with elements of both sexes, or there is an ambiguity between genitals and genetics and so forth. Um, that's 2%. That seems a tiny number. It's a tiny percentage, but it's a huge number of human beings. Now, does that mean that the rest of the vast majority of humans are likewise sexually fluid? That's where the argument is. For Duvall, we are primates. We are primates first and foremost. And primates, like so many other species, are sexually dimorphic, meaning we have different bodies, different, different degrees of hormones, different, not just, you know, see, not just experiences, different bodies in the world. And that's primary. You can't wish that away. You know, one example he uses that I found very compelling is this. When we look at a transgender woman, a woman who has lived her entire life as a man, who came through puberty as a male, we often feel, and Duvall is very sensitive about this because he's not transphobic. He supports transgender rights down to the ground. But he says, look, if we feel uncomfortable looking at someone who has male features, but is defining herself as a woman, our primate brains are going to have to struggle with that. We can struggle, we should struggle, we can overcome the struggle, but we should understand where the struggle comes from. Our sexually dimorphic brains, which, which, which are present the minute we're born, babies begin to tell the difference between a male face and a female face. Right. It's the most primary issue for reproduction, as you can imagine. You could say, I guess, that the question of it might be where you place the emphasis there, because the emphasis might be that, uh, that you should struggle against it, because, that's a, because you can get over that. Do you know what I mean? That, that we shouldn't be defined by what's in there, and we can uh, get over that very quickly and treat people equally. Oh, absolutely. He's He is very clear about that, as I would be too, by the way. The fact that many aspects of our behavior are evolutionarily influenced doesn't mean we can't overcome them. Look at all the people who are vegetarian. Well, human beings are omnivores. Yes. You know, As a species, we can eat anything, but we can choose not to eat meat, right? Or we can choose to go on this diet versus that diet. Um, likewise, we are all of us born with an inherent preference for our own kind. That's what ethnocentrism means. But that does not mean that we must feel antipathy and hostility toward people who are not like us, you see? So the human beings, thanks to our giant frontal cortex, which gets us in so much trouble, can also get us out of trouble if we learn how to understand where these feelings or biases are coming from 
then we can have take the first step in changing them, controlling them or overruling them. And does Lucy Cook, so that's what Frantz de Waal says, does Lucy Cook say the same thing or does she say something different? Well, I think her, <laughs> I think her view is that sexuality is, that human sexuality is more like the anemone fish. You know, we really are fluid. Um, hard, hard to say. Um, I don't think sexual identity is as fluid as she does. But, and by the way, that's not the same as sexual behavior. I, I want to make that distinction. Human sexual behavior throughout history and across culture is as varied as the bonobo. Human beings have had sex with, you know, both sexes, one sex, the other sex, several sexes, you know, orgies hanging from their feet from the rafters, you know, human sexual behavior is plenty varied, but that's different from sexual orientation. That would be uh, one point or from feeling yourself to be male and female or male or female. Um, I think that what Lucy might say, I really shouldn't speak for her, but from her book, she thinks that sexual identity is likely to be and become as fluid as gender is. And that, you know, we, we're going to see, won't we? Carol Tavris, thank you so much. Very many thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Still to come on the show, we'll be exploring the history of books courtesy of a bibliobiography by Shakespearean scholar Emma Smith. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, don't be too surprised, but we are going to talk about books, what they're made of, what they look like, what they mean, what power they have, how we display them, even we'll get to what's inside. This week, we're reviewing the bibliobiography of Emma Smith, who has delightfully shared her expertise with us on the podcast a few times as Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Oxford and the author of many books, usually about Shakespeare. But her most recent book out this week is Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers, and is not about Shakespeare. James Waddell reviewed it for us, and we're delighted that he joins us today to talk us through the world of shelfies and books made from ham, among other things. James, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So you say that in Portable Magic, Emma Smith encourages us to attend to the accidentals of a book. What are these accidentals and what are the accidentals of her book like? Well, there's a big um, bibliographic uh, debate which has been raging in fusty libraries for years about what constitute the accidentals and the substantives of various different books, which I am not going to get into. Um, but I think, I think broadly, for the, for the, for the purposes of, um, of, of Emma Smith's book, when people talk about how much they love books, they're usually talking about what lies between the covers, you know, the, the, the contents of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Smith wants to suggest is that the, the pleasure and, um, well, the power of books lies almost as much in their physical presence, their, their thingness and what she calls their, their bookhood. So that might include anything from the physical weight and the, the stature of a book to the materials from which it's crafted to the supplementary paratexts that form part of it and, and so on. Um, so now, in, in some ways, this isn't really anything new. Um, so Emma Smith, as you said, is a, is a renaissancist and is a, a Shakespeare scholar. And it's been many years now that early modernists have been familiar with the, the material turn, the, the book historical turn uh, towards interest in books in their physical printed or, 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 or indeed handwritten uh, manifestations. I think what makes this book in particular so appealing is that it has this kind of wild uh, historical sweep. Uh, so the chapters aren't arranged chronologically, they're arranged by themes. So you get these pleasantly bonkers trans-historical uh, comparisons. And also, as, as you suggest, you get a sense of Smith as a personality, you know, particularly her, her love for books, which are the sort of tools of the trade that she's uh, spent her life in and indeed which I think have sort of fashioned her as a as a person. Does she or does anyone, I've just got to ask this, do they mention in terms of the accidentals, does what a book smells like count? Because I, I always, I can't resist having a sniff of a book. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Does that sound weird? It's true. <laughs> Lucy, the TLS's resident book sniffer. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes the paper it smells so lovely yeah I think yeah I think consciously or unconsciously when you pick up a book you either get that kind of like um uh fresh sort of hardback academic-y smell um but you can also get quite a sort of like older sort of like fustier smell I think there's lots of books in portable magic that we sort of make well maybe maybe you would be interested in smelling this one but there's a there's there's an artist book that she writes about constructed by the artist um Ben Denzer 
um, which is made entirely out of slices of processed cheese. Oh, um, so okay. I don't know if that would be a kind of pleasant one to smell or maybe an unpleasant one. To it smell. would be an interesting one to smell, though, wouldn't it? would it? be an interesting one to smell. Like Lady Gaga's dress, but the other way around mm. for a book. And is there actual writing on the slices of cheese? I don't think so, no. It's just a kind of codex form with these cheese slice um, pages. That's just a packet of cheese slices then, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Exactly. I don't understand. I mean, even if it's given a spine with, I don't know, a piece of celery or something, <laughs> I wouldn't count that. I mean, a book to me has to have, you know, as Alice might say, books and pictures mm-hmm. and conversation. Yeah. You can't, you've got to say no words, surely, or, or at least pictures. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the things that Smith talks about. She has this final chapter um, on what is a book? Like, how do we know um, when we're holding a book and when we're holding a, a packet of cheese? And um it may sound on the description of the, the Bendenza cheese book. And in fact, he did another one with um, with slices of mortadella ham as well. That's the one I'm really yeah. interested in. I <laughs> um, but when you when you look at a picture of it, um, it's just so unequivocally, unequivocally a book. It's like, oh, I'm looking at a book. Um, and I think that's part of what Smith is um, getting at is that even without so many of these features that we consider to be really essential to books, i.e., you know, words or kind of semantic content, actually there's something else which makes an object recognisable as book, um, which is kind of beyond or or outside of that. Um, But Mm. yeah, she does reflect actually on uh, what the book of Mortadella might actually be about. And she kind of reaches a bit of an impasse and says something (laughs) like, what is the book of Mortadella about? Mortadella. What else? What else could it possibly be about? Um, So, yeah, she kind of reaches a bit of a bit of a bit of a full stop. It's kind of reminding me of those those pictures that you see shared on social media quite a lot of people who bake cakes in the shape of things that are so extraordinarily realistic (laughs) and they might be something sort of slightly disquieting like a kind of silicon lavatory brush or a a tv never seen one of those you know i know me i'm just i'm throwing it out there so as just to try and correct the impression that i'm giving of being really really fustyish about books having to have you know actual lines of words in them yeah um but it does sound like it's the the slightly that wrong footing of you of your expectation of what something looks like signifying what it actually is it's nature yeah. Is it that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I think actually the conversation that we're having now is quite in the spirit of the of the book. Um, because as I say, you get these really lovely sort of giddy kind of free associative um, comparisons going on. And that's one of the real pleasures of spending time with this book. Um, there's, there's one bit, I don't know if you remember the cover of the Jilly Cooper novel, Riders, that has that famous image of the kind of disembodied yes. ass mm. wearing wearing riding jodhpurs. Um so, so by Emma Smith, that, that gets compared to an 8th century copy of the Epistles of St. Peter, um, commissioned by St. Boniface, um, and they're compared on account of their similarly uh, extravagant um, gold lettering. Um, so there's all sorts, and that kind of thing happens all the time in this book. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, 
you do get this uh, this feeling of being in one of these freewheeling post dinner party conversations when you're when you're reading it in a way which is which is quite enjoyable. The gold letters, is it? I'm sure there's a lot to say about them. They, that it means all sorts of things, doesn't it? Gold letters. So, w- what's her book like then? What's what's that book like physically? What does it say um, about her? I don't mean within it, as it were, but just the accidentals of it to begin with. Yeah. Well, so I had the um, kind of interesting experience of obviously receiving two copies of the book. So I first got the the kind of the galley review copy, um, which got sent out, um, which is in some ways what we might call a kind of lower status object or lower status book because it's in paperback um, and uh, it doesn't have a um, kind of a proper cover illustration or a, an index or a, um, or a, a dust jacket or anything like that. Any of those items that we might associate with a kind of like, uh, you know, grand higher status book, like a, like a classic. Um, but then on the other hand, um, as we know from people posting their kind of review copies of um, the latest, I don't know, uh, uh, novel to, to come out on, um, on Twitter or whatever, uh, often these kind of like slightly lighter, um, slightly scrappier copies actually end up having a certain kind of like cachet about them as well. Um, so yeah, so I got it in kind of like two versions. Um, but no, it's a, it's a, it's a, in its published form, um, it is a, a weighty hardback, um, which is uh, yeah pleasant to kind of uh, hold and, and spend an afternoon with. So yeah gold letters no gold letters no okay. gold letters no understated um, yes it is understated and in well it's understated i think like you know it's 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 nice to read um a book by emma smith which is a kind of um you know it's a trade book rather than an academic book um but also i think um. you get a little bit more of her voice in it um you know I think if we're looking at the accidentals of the the book as it as it finally came out you can start with her her bio which is on the dust jacket at the back um and it's quite kind of like uh light on on her kind of um amazing considerable uh academic credentials it just says something like um uh, she went unexpectedly to university in Oxford and, and never really left um and it's quite kind of um uh informal you know we hear about how she enjoys um silent films and bird watching and 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 cars and her her Um. hobbies um and I think that's one of the things that's really pleasant about this book um as I say is yeah she's just such a wonderful kind of affable um guide to the to the materials and you get a real sense of her um yeah her love for them and so is it about her life in books or books and their readers throughout history or is it both of those things it's sort of about her life in books by proxy, I think. So she does discuss a little bit towards the end um, how she has sort of um, uh, fashioned herself and her own identity as a reader. Um, you know, she talks about her own library in her office and about how it's partly a functional working library with books that get used and read. Um, but also how it's partly constructing her as the, the, the sort of person uh, who is a bookish academic and who has, um, you know, stacks of uh, tomes uh, lying around. 
Um, so it's sort of both really. Um, but I think if there is a consistent theme to emerge um, from all of the eclecticism, I think it's probably that to, to, to kind of horribly misquote Oscar Wilde, um, everything in the world is about books, except books which are about power. Um, I think Smith is very attuned to the ways in which books can bespeak um, power relations and politics and power imbalances in various ways, whether that's manifested in, you know, who has access to books or who gets to deploy books' powers of uh, of persuasion and influence, um, or actually who can censor or or silence books as well. Um, So there's all sorts of ways in which which that happens. I was going to ask you about books books and power but and also about the 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 themes they're themed chapters aren't there because you said there's one on book burning and which seems to throw up some unexpected things uh, um, lots of them awful but not all of them as awful as you as you might imagine yes yeah that's very true I mean there's real like tonal shifts all the way through the book I mean the chapter on book burnings um opens with uh, this kind of grand ceremonial um uh destruction uh with lots of kind of local uh religious worthies uh in attendance uh of luther's works um during the reformation um and then winds its way through um uh various incidences of of book destruction and book burning um obviously touching on um uh, nazi book burnings which probably the 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 incidents of book burning which 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 stick in people's minds um uh the most as a kind of act of uh violence against books um but ending with uh the pulped mills and boone novels uh which in their kind of hundreds of thousands uh were recycled for road resurfacing materials um to make the surface of the m6 motorway a bit quieter as you drive along (laughs) oh my goodness so we are sort of driving over the ripped bodices (laughs) yeah exactly and and squires lustily pursuing maids indeed yes in literary history that makes the thought of being stuck in a jam on the M6 yes. is very much more palatable. Yeah, so if one were to kind of sense a frisson as one was uh, uh, driving along the M6 motorway. Yes, exactly. A little, yeah. a little tingling feeling. But yeah. <laughs> I'm very interested. I wonder if she also talks sort of relatedly, I suppose, about the idea of the disposal of books and what we do with books when, you know, we're not we no longer want them people are very squeamish about disposing of books even though they may know they're never going to go back to them and book thinning when space is occasionally at a premium can be a a very live issue can't it yeah yeah indeed I think you know um people are squeamish um about what we physically do with books um in general you know I remember there was that um, tweet a year or two ago from a book critic who posted a picture of his copy of War and Peace or something like that, like some big weighty novel that he had sliced in half in order to make it more kind of conveniently transportable so he could read it on the tube or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was huge like uproar about this. And then people were like, oh my God, he's a kind of like book murderer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think... I think, um, yeah, people do get very, very sensitive and, and, and hap about 
the destruction of books and marking books and, and marginal notes and so on, um, which is, um, you know, like it or not, actually contrary to the most of the long history of book marking and book annotation and slicing book up, books up and pasting them together. Um, so, yeah, squeamish though we may feel, um, unfortunately, I think the history of books probably tells us that that's inevitable, really. And of course, that sometimes becomes a way of writers expressing the, you know, that, that sort of taking a part of the form of the book. If you think, think of something like B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunates, you know, lots of chapters in a box that you can shuffle and read at will. And even, you know, Ali Smith's book, How to Be Both, that was completely sort of random you know you bought it at random it depended whether you mm. read the present day story or the the past uh story would just depended at random the one that you'd taken from the shelf mm, yeah and once you'd done one you could never do the other yeah so uh, the form sort of does sometimes often perhaps influence the content doesn't it yes yes very much so I mean I think like anyone who is a lover um, of books is familiar with that lovely feeling that you get on holiday of sitting down with a kind of 800 page really trashy novel and there's something about (laughs) the feeling of the physical way to it and there's something that Smith writes about in the book actually Um, I think she refers to it as like a, a, a kind of wodge of pleasure or something like that when you sit with a with a with a big book in your hand that kind of um cues up your expectations that you're about to get something um which is kind of deliciously uh, uh sort of copious and um and substantial um and then also conversely as well you know i think um whether a book is in paperback or hardback tees up all sorts of expectations as well um and I think what's so nice about 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 some of the, the the stories in this book is that often those expectations are actually subverted. So there's a whole chapter about this wildly popular um, 19th century genre, which is gift books, which are these kind of almanac style books, um, which would get handed out as Christmas presents, um, which were seen to be a sort of like feminine um, or kind of, you know, stereotypically gendered as feminine, um, uh, sort of like a light. Um, kind of maybe slightly sort of trashy present to receive um, that we'd get kind of disposed of at, um, at, at the end of the year or indeed at the end of the, the Christmas period. Um, but actually um, abolitionist um, campaigners um, uh, started to bring out their own versions of these uh, almanacs um, that carried um, bits of poetry or bits of writing or bits of polemic um, from figures in the uh, abolitionist movement um, that were making, you know, serious um, political points under the guise of these kind of light, airy, uh, trashy kind of like almanacs or annuals that you would that you would throw away at, at the end of the month. Um, so yeah, so often um, books can surprise us in that way and actually not meet the uh, not meet the expectations that we might bring to them. And I think that's, that's just yet another another pleasure of uh, of reading, really. Now, can you tell us about shelfies? Tell us about the <laughs> shelfies that Emma Smith talks about. Enlighten us. So this this to me is um, 
really kind of the standout chapter of, of, of the book, I think, because it's um, when she really gets her kind of um, uh, uh, visual um, interpretative skills um, going. So she opens um, by talking about um, the kind of post-pandemic trend, really, for um, Zoom interviews in which um, politicians and um, anyone who was worth their salt who was going on TV to do a Zoom interview um, would of course need to have arrayed behind them um, their fantastic uh, library um, of uh, weighty and, and, and kind of complicated and worthy books. I mean unfortunately this is a audio interview so people won't be able to see my vast library <laughs> Uh, it's absolutely staggering we uh, can yeah exactly yeah so many languages as well <laughs> yes of course yeah the sort of latin section down to my left greek up to my right so yeah um but she 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 uses that as a as a jumping off point um to talk about three uh historic uh shelfies um as she calls them these kind of self-presented images of your identity um in books so she starts with um, the great picture um, of Lady Anne Clifford, commissioned by Lady Anne Clifford in, in 1646, which is a really astonishing um, triptych portrait, which is printed um, alongside my review, I think, in the in the um, it is yeah in the paper, which yeah. is really and it's and it's and it's and it gets a nice a nice big um, half page the image, so it's really worth looking at because it has all these extraordinary details um including in the background uh lady Anne clifford's copies of ovid and chaucer and don quixote kind of articulating um her, her humanist uh erudition um but which also has um various legal documents and so on which are supposed to refer to um, the various struggles that she had to get control of her inheritance, like her inheritance of land. Um, so she's saying all sorts of things about herself um, using, uh, well, using her shelf. Um, and then there's another portrait um, about a century later that's a bit more kind of scandalous and glamorous with uh, Madame Pompadour, the uh, official mistress, um, which I didn't know until I read this book, was a uh, um, a, a job title. It was a job title. That was her post. Yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, to, to Louis Fifteenth, um, and she similarly commissioned a portrait uh, where she has a book kind of like tumbling out of her hand, um, but also a bookcase um, behind her. And yes, Smith's take on this, um, uh, which is really uh, enlightening is that it actually has references to conventional portraits um, or conventional depictions of the Annunciation, like Annunciation scenes um, uh, with, with Mary, um, uh, in which Mary is often reading, reading a book. Um, so there's this lovely kind of um, uh, sort of slightly uh, kind of cheeky, subversive um, references to, to religious imagery um from this uh from this person who obviously held quite a kind of like a scandalous uh status um but she uh, commissions this kind of like fantastically erudite um reworking of um these very pious um uh traditions of imagery um and then the, the chapter concludes with the famous photograph of marilyn monroe reading uh ulysses 
um, uh, uh, where she seems kind of like absorbed in, in this um, uh, notoriously kind of uh, difficult text. Um, and again, you know, it's another um, uh, woman who's taking an opportunity to um, uh, have some kind of agency over, she's how, um, over how she's depicted using uh, books to kind of self-present in imagery. So it's a really, really lovely kind of trans-historical um, passage that's so, so, so illuminating in the way that it draws out these completely unexpected connections between these uh, very different figures who are living in, in very different times. Um, but it's done with just this really lovely kind of um, uh, virtuosic um, uh, effect. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's one of these incidences where the, the the kind of historical sweep of the book works works really well, and it means we all got to up our game a little bit in terms of backgrounds. Yeah, exactly. And this goes right up to the the sort of Instagram generation, of course, doesn't it? Actually, we're probably post Instagram now. It's probably <laughs> you're supposed to be, or TikTok. What you know, all these all these kind of new platforms that that people are are representing all sorts of bits of their lifestyle on but books are among those aren't they uh, mm. I mean I'm always terrified by it because I think well I know I have a lot of books and I know a lot of them are very good books but there is bound to be a kind of companion to sort of cat defleeing in the middle of them <laughs> or something like you know something really sort of I think that prosaic. should have actually pride of place yeah. I think that should be front <laughs> and front and center yeah the best um, thumbed of all of them Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the absolute worst book to appear in your in your shelfie would be, but there is um, a kind of well, a pretty dark um, and and pretty grim chapter in this book as well, which looks at um, the history of uh, of Mein Kampf in publication, um, which uh, obviously holds this kind of um, uh, you know horrifying kind of talismanic status now as a as a kind of synecdoche or as a as a figure um, for uh, Nazi um, uh, uh, ideology. Um, and Smith describes um, calling up this book from the stacks uh, and feeling kind of like sullied uh, um, or feeling like she needs to kind of explain to the, to the librarian um, that she's, you know, she's, 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 she's only reading it um, in order to write about it um, for the purposes of its kind of, uh, you know, horror. Um, and even in the edition that it's published now, um, there's all these kind of distancing um, effects, which again happen as part of the the physical text. Like there's um, the text is surrounded by these kind of uh, annotations on all pages. Um, it's very clearly labelled on the front as a, a, a kind of critical edition, I suppose, both academically and also in terms of uh, being critical of the, the ideas within. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure um, if anyone's yet been caught out with a, with a copy of Mein Kampf on, the, on, on, their, on their shelf. Um, much better to have Cat. Much better to have, yeah, Mein Cat instead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did this book make you think about books or your own bibliobiography differently, do you think? Mm. Well, so I'm obviously um, also, uh, so I'm, I'm a PhD student and I'm also, um, uh, like Smith, 
um, uh, working with um, early copies of, of, of books the whole time. You know, I spend most of my life in the, in the British Library rare books reading room. Um, so I think, you know, when you're in the third or fourth year of your, your PhD and, you know, you've spent um, nine to five for, for, for three years in the rare books reading room, um, kind of plowing through stuff, I think it's easy to become uh, slightly um, kind of not quite disillusioned, but certainly to take these these objects for granted, you know, some of which, if you're looking at a book that's 400, 500 years old, are real historical survivors and often feel a little bit like kind of time capsules or even time travel machines um, with which you can have this very tactile, uh, immediate connection with the, with the past. Um, so I think, yeah, if anything, it's made me sort of re-realise um, that these books are kind of like, you know, really, really magical objects. You know, that's often something very, um, very special about them, you know, whether that's kind of, um, you know, toxic or harmful um, or whether that's kind of beautiful and 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 revelatory or 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 inspiring of um kind of human connection um yeah i think it's it's sort of made me rediscover the um yeah the power of of the book so i'm i'm looking looking forward to um yeah going back into the rare books library with a new sense of uh of kind of wonder and appreciation <laughs> i must say you've totally sold this book to mm. me james i will be ordering it Oh. the minute we finish doing this it just sounds blissful actually yeah it's definitely a book for book lovers I think yes I think if well well maybe it maybe it might um convince the non-believers it might convince them to say even if you don't feel like reading Bleak House or whatever you could just make yourself a book out of cheese and ham and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly delicious just don't get too near to the fire <laughs> yeah exactly yeah we can all be we can all be readers or we can all be we can all be book owners at least so long as we have access to a supermarket with a refrigerated goods (laughs) (laughs) a wonderful uh, thought to leave it on james thank you very much for joining us thanks a lot cheers have time for this week our thanks go to carol tavaris and james waddell thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.